Well, we're going to continue our series on generosity and fields of gold. Today it's called Have a Plan. Have a Plan. I think there's a famous saying, if you fail to plan, then you plan to fail. And it seems that we do that a lot in a lot of areas in our life, but we don't do it in our finances. We don't plan our finances, right? We, we, we tend to just kind of hope to get the bills paid, living paycheck to paycheck. And I know people from upper middle class to people that aren't even in the middle class at all in the lower ends of the spectrum that are just living paycheck to paycheck. They don't understand godly principles for finances. They don't understand how finances and God designed finances to work today specifically. And like I said at the beginning of this series, it seems like the preacher can talk about faith, the preacher can talk about marriage, the preacher can talk about prayer, the preacher can talk about salvation and baptisms, but the minute the preacher talks about finances, everybody's like, I'll see you in a few weeks, preacher, when you're done, right? Why? Because money represents so much of our time, our energy, our effort, and, and we tend to, like, come on, man, just don't go there. But Jesus talked more about money than he talked about heaven or hell. He talked more about money than he talked about uh, spiritual living. He talked more about money than he talked about anything else. Why? Because he knew that it grips our heart. It, it, it holds us. And we hold it. And so today we're talking about the plan, the plan of money. What was God's plan with Money In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, the Apostle Paul tells, tells the church at Corinth this, Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. Or in other words, God takes pleasure, God is happy and excited about people who give generously. That excites him. And I don't know about you, but <laughs> one of the goals in my life is to make God happy. Right? That's like kind of important on my, it's like way up there on my priority list. I want to make God happy. I want to, I want to do the things that make God happy. And so God loves a cheerful giver. The word cheerful here literally means joyous, excited. Have you ever been around your friends and you can't stop laughing? Yes. You had that moment where you just look. I know you, you three down here, the stooges down here have. I know, you know, you just look, you just look at each other and you start laughing. Like you can't, you can't stop laughing, right? And you're like, pull, and you try, and no matter how hard you try to pull yourself together, you can't stop. This is the definition of this word in the original language. God loves somebody who takes so much joy in giving, they just can't stop. And if we break the word down even further, okay, it's actually, and now this, this Greek word might sound familiar. While cheerful is a compound word in the Greek, it comes from an original Greek word, and that Greek word is helios. Helios. It's where we get the English word helium. It's where we get the English word helium from. Helios. Well, here's what I can tell you about helium. It's lighter 
than air. Do you know how I know that? Because most of us, God says he loves somebody that's cheerful and giving. They're hilariously, they hilariously love to give. He takes joy in it. See, most people in our society, in our culture, they have a bit of generosity, but they give because maybe out of compulsion. They give because they have to. And so they just kind of, they, they just blend in with everybody else. They're, they're kind of down here with everybody else. They're just, they give because, well, my financial advisor says I shouldn't give what the Bible says to give. I just give enough so that I have some generosity. But God says I love the cheerful giver, the one that's above the culture, the one that gives above what everybody else says I should be giving. I give more than, than what my financial advisor says I should give because it's what God calls me to. I do more. I go above and beyond so that I don't blend in with, and I'm going to have to tie this off down here, or Mr. Willis will be like, can you explain why there's a balloon? I'm like, well, it's part of the sermon, right? God wants our giving in comparison to what the world does to look like this. And he says, this is what I love. I love somebody that is helios in their giving. I love somebody that's lighter and just goes so far above and beyond what the world even thinks is necessary. And we're going to pull out some scripture, a story in scripture here in just a little bit of an example of somebody who gave above and beyond and the culture around him looked at him and went, you're an idiot. (laughs) I know, man, it's so cool, isn't it? Right? This is what God calls us to. When we give it, when we give, it causes us to rise above the world system. The world says, get yours and hold on to yours. Get it and hold on to it because you never know. And God says, no, 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 no. I need you to rise above the world's system. I'm not calling you to be a part of the world. I'm calling you out of the world. You might be in it, but you're not of it. And so I'm calling you to a higher standard. I'm calling you to do something even greater. Sometimes when we look at this passage... When Paul says, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. And we looked at this verse a couple of weeks ago. And if we just kind of take it at surface value, then we say, okay, well then Paul's talking about, Paul's just talking about whatever you feel like you should give, you should just give it. And, and, and it doesn't matter. But he says, no, 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 not under compulsion, not under compulsion, and not reluctantly. If I, if I wait for the feeling to give, then I might give. And I love what John Maxwell says, and, and some of you need to write this down. This isn't in my notes, but this is, on my, this is on my desktop, on my laptop. This is what it says. I love this quote from John Maxwell. He says, he says winners do what's right and, feel, and they feel good. Whiners wait to feel good, then do what's right. Winners do what's good or do what's right and they feel good. Whiners wait until they feel good and then do what's right. And so Paul says, listen, not out of compulsion, do good because you're supposed to do good. And when you do good, you will begin to feel right. Don't wait until you feel it. He says, don't don't wait for the compulsion. Set in your heart. 
what you should be giving to the church and to God and rise above what the world says we should do. So like anything else in Scripture, when God says we should be doing this, he gives us kind of a baseline. He says, here's your baseline for giving, right? He gives us a percentage, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But if I asked you, I said, if I asked you, and I'm going to ask you to show your hands, but if you have a 401k or a savings plan or retirement plan, and you're putting into that, do you just put in whatever you feel like whenever you feel like it? <laughs> no. Because odds are, buying the nicest, newest rod and reel is going to come over the 401k, right? Those shoes are going to come before the 401k. So what do you do to prevent your compulsory buying? You say, I want X percentage taken out of my check and dumped into my 401k. I don't need it in my hands because I will spend it. And so it automatically, if you have an automatic withdrawal, you make it happen automatically, right? Because why? Because impulsively, most of us, we know... Standing out the checkout, I really want the Butterfinger, right? And so we impulsively, have you ever noticed like sometimes the stuff at the checkout costs more than if you go back five aisles, right? You guys are really quiet. Okay, shopping tip 101, that's intentional, all right? That's intentional. Have you ever noticed that you have to weave your way through certain departments to get to the department you want? That's intentional, they're not idiots. They've done studies. They've done surveys. They understand shopping patterns and habits. Target knows that if you use their debit card and you don't use cash, your brain does not sense pain. When we use cash, the pain receptors in our brain go off. Literally true. Target did a study. And they know that if they can get you to use a card instead of cash, you won't feel the pain as much and you will... Spend more. Dun, dun, dun. You're like, those dirty guys. That's not fair playing on my psychology. But they've studied it. They know this. And so they want you to use the card and not cash because you don't sense the, decre- the decrease happening and walking out going, I only got $5 left and I walked in with 100 I saved 50 Spent 100 and I got 5 bucks left. Man, I feel good. Like you ever go to a certain department store and they never tell you when you check out. And as soon as I say this, you're all going to know what I'm talking about. As soon as you check out, right, they never tell you what the total was. They always circle how much you saved. Oh, you saved. Yeah, but the line above it says 150. Yeah, but you saved 300. No, 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 no. Right? Like I have this whole argument in my head when Lynn says, let's go to this particular store. And I'm like, no, because all they're going to do is sell you how much you saved. And the bank says, no, 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 you spent, right? There's this whole, some of you are looking at me like you already know. It's okay, you can laugh. All of these things are done intentionally with intention to make you feel better about spending your money at their store. And so the apostle Paul says, you have to set in your heart and in your mind what you're going to do and how you're going to give to God's kingdom so that the compulsion and the pulsivity, the, the pulse of, I want to do it now, or I want to hold back, or I want to get, he's like, you can't do that. 
It's the same thing we do with our 401ks and automatic withdrawal and, and all of these things. We have to become intentional or our emotions. You see, in the United States, I believe it's 100%, and I think the people that live under my roof get tired of me saying this. We don't have an income problem. We have an emotion problem. Most of us don't have an income problem. We have an emotional problem. I want, I want, I need, I need. Please, please give, give, give me, me, me. We have an emotional problem, not an income problem. Because the problem is, why? Because I can go get more money. I can make more money, but guess what? I still have a problem because I spend it. Ouch, man, this is hurt. I promise. Okay, I promise you, you, you'll be a better person for this discussion this morning. Okay? And so... <clears throat> We don't necessarily have an income problem in the United States. We have an emotional problem. We have an emotional problem. And so we have to decide that my giving is not going to be whimsical. My giving is going to be set. And I'm not going to move. I'm not going to move it. And so the Bible gives us that percentage. It's called tithe. It's 10%. It's 10% of your income. And we're going, to take a look at, we're going to take a look at that and where that comes from. But setting a percentage objectifies giving and removes the fear from the process. It objectifies. It's no longer, giving is no longer subjective to how I feel and what I've got. It's objective. Right? And then it removes the fear from the process. And here's what... Here's what happens when you begin to tithe there are four things that begin to happen in your money and over time you become a better person the first one is this it teaches you discipline because now it seems like you have less financially but like I said a couple of years ago when I taught on generosity 90% with God's blessing will go further than 100% of you trying to manage it I'd rather have 90% with God blessing it than 100% of me trying to control it. Number two, it forces prioritization. Now you've got to prioritize. Now you've got to begin to save because the 10% I was just going to blow on that over there, I can't because I've given it to God, and now I'm going to have to begin to prioritize and save. It teaches you priorities. It teaches you discipline. It also teaches you patience. Dave Ramsey says that one of the signs of maturity is delayed gratification. One of the signs, he says of maturity is delayed gratification. The ability to save up for something and then buy it instead of just buying it and going into debt because I want it right now. And then the fourth thing that it does is that it encourages the giving. Right? So, where does this whole notion of 10% come from in Scripture? Why 10%? Where does it come from? How did it start? Well, it actually, the story is in Genesis chapter 14, but the writer of Hebrews kind of retells the story in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. It says this, this Melchizedek was king of Salem. Salem, just real quick, Salem is the English version of the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom is the Hebrew word for peace. So... There you go. So Melchizedek was the king of Salem and the priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name of Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. 
without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of his plunder. So here's, here's what's happening. There's a period during the calendar year where all the kings go out to battle and fight to grow their territory. Abraham takes his men, and he goes out and he fights, and he begins to grow his territory. On the way back, he meets Melchizedek. Right? On the way back, he meets Melchizedek. And the Bible tells us that on his way back, that Melchizedek moves towards Abraham. The priest of God made the first move towards man. Man's response was, here's 10%, because you took a step towards me and loved me when I was unlovable, and you cared for me when, I, when nobody else cared for me, and you died for me when nobody else was willing to die for me. While I was shouting, crucify him and free the thief and the murderer Barabbas, I was, that's what I was shouting. You said, no, I'm going to the cross for you anyway. So God, so the priest of God makes a step towards mankind. Mankind's response is 10%. It's, it's, it's yours, right? In Genesis chapter 14, though, in the original story, it tells us that the king of Sodom happened to be with Abraham. Now, if you've been in church any length of time, you've probably heard about Sodom and Gomorrah, right? The, the city that God said, I will destroy for a lack of righteousness, right? And so he rains down uh, brimstone and fire and hail on, and it just literally wipes out the city because of their lack of righteousness and because the sin was so great. This is that king because that happened during Abraham's lifetime. And here's what the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 14 in this story. Melchizedek moves towards Abraham as Abraham's coming back. And they begin to have a talk. And Abraham says, I want God to have a 10%. This is the very first tithe in all of the Bible. And he says, I want God to have 10% because God has so blessed me. I want to give it back. And the Bible tells us in Genesis 14 that the king of Sodom, uh, the king of Sodom who was there with Abraham, looked at Abraham and said, you're nuts. That's stupid. Don't do that. That 10% is yours. You fought for that in battle. Keep it for yourself. Wow. Anybody ever hear those voices when you try to give to the church? Is the king of Sodom still alive and well in some words? I think so. I think so. Because why? Because, well, it's mine. I've worked for it. And I, and I own it. And, and I'm going to keep it because I went to work and I fought for this. And it's mine. And it is the spirit of Sodom that God says there's nothing righteous in that city and I have to destroy it because it's so wicked. That is not acceptable. And so that is Old Testament, right? That's, that's where this idea of 10% comes from. And so Abraham said, you know what, king of Sodom? You can be down here with the rest of the culture. I'm rising to another level spiritually. And I'm going to trust God with the 90% instead of trying to manage 100% myself, Right? So Abraham tithed despite the pressure from the culture. He rose above it. Oftentimes, when we think about the 10%, we're like, God's just trying to restrict me. God's just trying to hold me back. Let me ask you a question. Of all of the other 
commands that God gives us. Do unto others as you would want done to you. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't lie. Which of all of these, uh, don't commit adultery, don't murder. Which of these other commandments do we look at and go, that's restricting me. That, that commandment about don't murder your neighbor, that's restricting me because I really want to murder somebody. Okay, maybe you've said that. But why then would God all of a sudden make a law that's contrary to every other law? That's suddenly all of a sudden restrictive. Maybe it's just that our thought pattern and the thoughts that we think because we tend to be selfish, and if you don't believe we're, we're inherently selfish, take two toddlers and put one toy between them. We're inherently selfish, right? We have to fight it. Let me, let me show you how this works. I need a volunteer. Can I get a volunteer? Ray, come on up. Raymond, come on. Come on, Ray. All right, come here. I'm going to need you to do a job. Do you have a job right now? No. No? Nope. Okay, well, work is good for you. You should work. Yes, it is. Okay. I need you to do me a favor. I need you to do me some work. Okay. I need you to walk over there between those two raised things and get that envelope that's down there. See, inherently, God gives us the ability to go get money and do work. It's, the Bible says God gives us this ability. I want you to open it up. Okay? That's yours. I just need a dollar. I just need 10% of it. The rest is yours. Whatever you want to do with it. I don't want it. It's yours. I got... You were, you were generous to give me 10%. All right. See ya. Thanks, man. When he realized that it was me giving him the ability to get the money, what did he do? What did you do, Ray? You tried to give it all back, didn't you? Why don't we do that with God? God says, go work. I'll produce an income for you. But how many of us come back and go, uh, all right, well, here, you can have it all. No, I don't want it all. I only ask for 10%. The rest of it you go live off of, do whatever you want. We don't... How many, what would happen to the kingdom of God if we were like Ray and said, uh, it's all yours anyway? No, no, I understand it's all mine. I just want you to go manage the rest of it. I want you to go take care of the rest of it. Here's what it would be like. If you have a financial advisor who's managing your money for you, right? Maybe they're just managing your 401k or, or whatever, or, or your bank, right? It, it, would be, it would be like it's the equivalent of saying, you know what, bank? I've given you all the savings. Just, just give me 10% of what's in the savings, and bank, you keep the rest of it. Financial advisor, I know I've got all this money in my 401k. Just give me 10% of my 401k, and you keep the rest of it. It doesn't, you would never do that to your bank or to your financial advisor. And yet God does it to us all the time. Live off the 90, just give me 10, we're good to go. I'll bless the other 90 if you bless me with the 10. I'll bless your 90 and make it stretch further than 100%. 
He does it all the time. He does it all the time. The reason that we don't buy into it is because we don't fully trust God in that area. We have, a, we have trust issue. So I get this a lot. Well, tithing's in the Old Testament. That, that's an old, that's something that Abraham, as you see, Abraham did that, and then the people of Israel did that. And that's, that's, just, that's, an, that's happened in the Old Testament. We're in the New Testament. Okay. I hear that. Now, Matthew 23, verse 23. Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. Jesus is being asked about tithing and talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he says this. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites. For you are careful to tithe even on even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe Yes, but do not neglect the more important things. He looks right at them in the New Testament. Jesus himself says, yes, you should tithe, but you also shouldn't forget justice and mercy and faith and the other things as well. What's he saying? He's saying, I want you to be a whole, complete person in all areas of your life. I want you growing in faith. I want you growing in mercy. I want you growing in love and justice and patience. I want you growing in generosity and in tithing. Jesus instructed us to tithe, but also not forget the other areas of our spiritual life. Jesus is like, yes, you should tithe. That's part of being a Christian. That's part of wanting God's kingdom to move forward, right? Jesus is concerned that we grow in all areas. Now, I also get asked this question a lot. Well, pastor... Do I tithe off the gross before taxes, or do I tithe off the net after taxes? Now, as we've talked about over the last few weeks, my question, my answer to that question would be, what kind of harvest do you want? Do you want a net harvest or a gross harvest? You only get a harvest off of what you plant in the ground. So the farmer's like, well, I'm going to hold these seeds back and only plant with this, then, Right? You see, the Bible talks about giving God first fruit. When I say, God, this first 10%, and, I, and Lynn and I tithe off our gross, okay? That's just our own personal thing. We tithe off of what the gross is before the government gets theirs. And what am I saying? In my heart and by my actions, I'm saying, God, you're more important than the U.S. government. God, you're more important and whatever it is that I'm going to... You're more important than the new car I want. You're more important. You're, you're coming first above everything else. You get it first. You are first. If, if I don't have the money to get the new rims, then I'll just set aside some money and save some money for the new rims. You get it first. Because I have said in my heart that it's going to be X amount and you're getting it gross. Because you're more important than anything else. That action alone tells God everything that I've worked for, all my time, my energy, my effort, and everything that, every, and everything that everybody else thinks that they have to get from me can wait. Because you come first. If we wait, and I talked about giving God the leftovers a few weeks ago, right? We, we tend to give God leftovers 
But God wants us to grow. God wants us to not just grow in our faith and our love and our patience and joy. He wants us to grow in our generosity. So I can tell you that Lynn and I have a goal right now financially to get our generosity up to 20%. That everything that comes in the priest household, 20% of it goes back into God's kingdom. It's a spiritual concept. I need to grow. And when I begin to grow in that manner, guess what happens to my faith level? Oh, man, I better start trusting God more. <laughs> right? I need to start throwing myself into God more because I'm going to have to trust him that I can still have money to put in my 401k and I can still have money to live and, and, and buy the Apple Jacks. No joke. Like we had a big box of Apple Jacks and it disappeared in two days. She's like, where did they go? I'm like, apparently we like Apple Jacks in this house. Right? I'm trusting God. God, you're first, and I'm going to trust that everything else, everything else lasts. I want, to, I want to give you two stories to close this out. There was a man who was saving and saving and saving. And he was saving to be able to, to be able to retire early. He was saving to pay for a wedding. Not pay for the wedding, but have money as they got into the marriage. He was saving for a wedding ring. He was saving for all sorts of stuff. He was saving, saving, banking, saving, banking, saving. And then he found out about a single mom who had to leave college who had to stop chasing her dream of getting a bachelor's and going in the career, getting a career because she became pregnant while she was in college and fighting to find a job and fighting to find things. And this man, as he began to think this over in his private time with God and began to pray about it, he decided that maybe what he was saving wasn't for him but it was for this single mom. And he didn't know quite what to do or where to go. So you know what he did? After a lot of prayer and a lot of soul searching, he said, you know what? This money is not mine. And he bought this soon-to-be mom. He bought her a house and said, it's yours. I'm not worried. I can go get more money. And when the time came for him to get married and to buy furniture for he and his wife and to go on their honeymoon and all of this sorts of thing, everything that he was saving for was back in spades. And the honeymoon they went on was far beyond what he thought he was originally ever going to plan. And the ring that he bought was more than he ever thought he was going to be able to purchase all because he said, God, this isn't my money. I'm going to buy this single mom who had to drop out of college and is trying to find a job. I'm buying her the house. She can have the house, and I'm going to trust you for the honeymoon and the wedding ring, and I'm going to trust you for the furniture, and I'm going to trust you with everything else. The honeymoon was out of this world. The ring was more than he ever thought he could afford, and he still had cash to pay for it all because he trusted God to buy this single mom a house. John Wesley, maybe you've heard of John Wesley, famous preacher in the 1800s, and he began to preach so much so that he began to earn 1,400 pounds a year. 
1,400 pounds, what is, what is that? 1,400 pounds in today's money is $300,000 a year. This preacher begins to make $300,000 a year from itinerant preaching, traveling and preaching. What's a preacher to do with $300,000 a year? He said, God, it's not mine. I'm going to begin to grow. Yes, I'm tithing. Yes, I'm doing your work. But I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to begin to give. And I'm going to grow in my generosity. Until eventually, the $300,000 a year that he was making preaching, 1,400 pounds then, he was living off of 2% and giving away 98%. He was living on 30 pounds a year, giving it away. The other, 90, the other 98%, giving it away, saying, God, it's yours. Take it. Giving it to the orphans, giving it, giving it to the, the single parent in his day, giving it to hospitals of his day, giving it to missions of his day. He, he gave away 90%, 98% of his income and lived off 30 pounds. And so I asked him one time, and I'm going to leave you with this thought. Somebody asked him, he said, what, what are you doing? What are you doing? The culture said, what are you doing? And he said this, make all you can, save what you can, and give all you can. John Wesley, make all you can, save what you can, give all you can. That would be my challenge to you today. Are you going to be a cheerful hilarious Helios giver or are you going to be like everybody else who's still living under the words of the king of Sodom who says, Abraham, you can't do that. That's ridiculous. And Abraham says, no, 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 no. I'm going to do what God's asked me to do. It's your choice. It's your decision. You're like, well, maybe, maybe you're to the point. You're like, I can't, I can't do 10%. I'm not there. Then start somewhere. And by faith in God, begin to grow it. Grow it from 10% to 12%. Grow it from 1% to 2%. Begin to grow it. I promise you, you will see a return, not just in your finances. You'll see a return in your relationships. You'll see a return in all sorts of areas. Let's stand up. You know, one of the things that the Bible tells us is it says that Paul says in 2 Corinthians elsewhere, he says, they gave of their finances because first, first, they gave themselves to God. And I'm going to ask Amy and Jesse to come down on this side, and I'm going to ask Aaron and Lori to come down on this side and maybe you're here today and maybe you've never first first given your life to Jesus maybe you're like I'm not giving Jesus any my money I don't even know who Jesus I don't even know this Jesus as we close out in song I want to invite you I want to invite you to come forward and we want to pray with you to ask God 
into your life. And to begin to take the baby steps, not just financially, but baby steps in your relationships and your trust, your faith. Say, I need my life to look more like Jesus's. If you're here this morning and that's your prayer, or maybe you want prayer for your finances. Maybe you need prayer for who knows, anything, healing, whatever it is. As we sing out and close out in song, I want you to come forward. We want to pray with you and believe God with you.